It's good to be here with you today and uh, glad we can gather and uh, worship together here on uh, the eve of Christmas. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Isaiah 11. We have folks who are traveling uh, through the weekend, and uh, if you will, remember them in prayer. I think most of us know who's traveling, but if you're looking around today and you're missing folks, then know that they are traveling or sick. Uh, we have several families that are, um, that are away today because they are sick, and uh, some who are working, some who are traveling, but uh, we're grateful that we're able to be here today. Isaiah chapter 11 um, though we began celebrating Advent some weeks ago, and many of you have been planning and making preparations for Christmas Day even before that, um, uh, the day on the calendar we have been waiting for is tomorrow, isn't it? It's tomorrow is Christmas Day. And as we were reminded this week, the fact is no one really knows what day Christ was born. We don't know that it was December the 25th. We don't even know if it was in the wintertime or whatever. We don't, we don't know those things. Um, but it is good for us to mark off a day and, and to value and give attention to the incarnation, the birth of Christ. That's a good thing. In the same way that we look at uh, the crucifixion and we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Those are, those are good things. They're necessary. They're hopeful for us. And they cause our mind and attention to be singularly focused uh, during those seasons. And uh, we're grateful for it. Um, I hope you've been encouraged over the past weeks as we have been able to walk through our Advent devotional series. We've looked at various dimensions of the incarnation. We've been able to worship and celebrate and, and, and really meditate on those things. And they've been, they've been good and rich. Uh, I was reminded uh, that even in today's devotion titled, The Day Heaven Kissed Earth, um, David Mathis reminded us of this truth. And this is what he said. He said, deeper than the Christmas narrative of his first coming, and the world-transforming Good Friday explanation about what his death accomplished is the mind-boggling truth, this mind-boggling truth. It's ultimately we who came into the world for him, for his glory, rather than he who came for us. In the decisive Christmas tally, it is not finally his arrival that makes much of us but our creation and redemption that is designed to make much of him. And it points us back to uh, the very truth that we were created to glorify him uh, and to love him and enjoy him forever. And yet with all of that, we still can echo Christ's own words that we heard just a few minutes ago in the assurance of pardon that Adam shared with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are many aspects of Christ coming in the flesh that point to the glory of God and his redeeming work. Uh, it is a loving and gracious act on God's part, but it was necessary for our sake. I, I hope we get that. It was necessary for our sake. So when we are talking as we 
did just a moment ago and hearing just as we did a moment ago uh, that uh, how will they know and believe in him whom they have not been introduced to and to know it is necessary and it was necessary for Christ to come and it is necessary for those to hear the gospel uh, if they're to be saved. Our text this morning will help us see this truth. Uh, Let's read Isaiah 11, and you follow along as I read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes on what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and a lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off and Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and gather and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he'll lead the people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Will you join me as we pray? Father, will you help us to understand the word of hope that was given to Israel and understand the word of hope that you have been giving to us and have given to us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We've been giving attention to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, We come back here today for our uh, um, our fourth message from it. It would do us well to remember that the prophet Isaiah is declaring to Israel that though their current and will be near future circumstances do not uh, and will not in a moment ever seem promising. But there is hope. There is hope. That is the resounding message of Isaiah. There's hope. 
And as we've seen, the hope will be delayed, but it's certain. And a just ruler is coming, Isaiah said, and he has come. But a just ruler is coming, and there will be no more injustices when he comes. And those who have committed those injustices and have not repented before the just ruler, well, they'll be judged accordingly because he's just, and they'll be punished. And we shouldn't take consolation in that except to know that he is just and he will work his justice accordingly. And in his coming, the curse of sin, and we looked at this last week, the curse of sin that came when Adam sinned and was, has plagued creation and distorted in some way every relationship from man's relationship with God to the wolf preying on the lamb, that curse will be removed and absolute peace and harmony will exist in the presence of God and the knowledge of the Lord will permeate uh, his new earth. The knowledge of the Lord will permeate his new earth. Um, one of the things that we do in sharing the gospel is, is that we are helping people know who he is. But there will be a sweeping knowledge of the Lord, knowing him in his greatness and in his authority and in his goodness. And in that knowledge, there will be the complete transformation of everyone and everything that is there at that time. I want us to look at verse 10 today. We'll only look at one verse, so you will be hopeful today that will not be long since we're only looking at one verse. But I want you to look at verse 10. Let's read it again. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I recall when I memorized a birth narrative from Luke 2 when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, I memorized it from the authorized version, the King James Version. In fact, I didn't know there was any other version that existed whenever I was in the fourth grade. It was all I knew, all I'd ever seen. But I do remember this from the very first verse. And it came to pass in those days. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I'm stressing that it, and it came to pass uh, because if you look back in the older King James Version, and we looked at, and we look at verse 10, it was, uh, and there shall come to pass a day. There shall come to pass a day. In other words, pointing to the fact that something is going to take place. I was thinking about that phrase in and of itself. It, it can have two different meanings. It's either pointing ahead to a specific event or events taking place on a specific day, or rather is pointing ahead to things happening in a day or a period of days or a period of time or, or a season of time or both. And in this case, I believe the context will help us determine what Isaiah is pointing toward. A day and days. I want us to look at that. In that day, some days, a day, notice what he says, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal. Now, I don't want us to remember who this root is. When we were, began reading in the first part of Isaiah chapter 11, we see that there is a stump. And for those who are just joining us today, let me kind of paint that picture for you real quickly. Uh, Israel is about to fall under the judgment of God because of their sin. 
and they are looking for ways of deliverance, and they're looking for ways of salvation. Uh, but Isaiah is coming with a word that you will not be able to thwart God's plan. You are going to fall under the judgment of God. And then he paints this picture, and he says, and when this judgment comes, you will be able to look out over the landscape, so to speak, and all you will see is a landscape of stumps, no tree standing. Where once there was a great forest, there is now nothing but stumps. And then he said, there is a stump there, the stump of Jesse, that has a root that is alive and feeds that stump. And from that stump, it will sprout and a branch will grow from it. And he was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was speaking of. So when we look here in this text, he's pointing back to the stump, notice what he says, and the root of Jesse. There is a root there that has given life to this stump, and that one is Christ himself. He was the one who literally gave life to Jesse. He's the Lord God. He's the one who sent Samuel to anoint David, Jesse's son, to be king of Israel. The root established a covenant with Jesse's son, and that covenant was a covenant that said that there would one come from David that would sit and rule and reign the entire world from that throne and from that lineage. God is a covenant-cutting God. I want you to hear that. God is a covenant-cutting God. He's committed to his purposes. He always has been, always will be. And as we've already heard this morning in the songs that we've sung and the passage of scripture that we've read, at the very heart of that purpose is his redemption of those who would believe in him, those who would trust in him, his redemption of creation, his redemption of all that has been distorted and damaged and destroyed by sin. That's true of you in your life. All that sin has destroyed in your life is redeemed and can be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you have done, there's nothing that you will do that in some way cannot be redeemed if you place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because that is God's purpose and that is his promise. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps it. He, through the prophet Isaiah, was promising hope for the future. And, and I've, I've continued to go back to this text. How does this word coming to them, already seeing the devastation, recognizing the hardship that is to come, that has been declared by God, you would have to believe and know, at least at this point in time, this is going to come. It's not going to get better. It's not going to get better in my lifetime. It's not going to get better in my lifetime. But God has made a promise of hope. He's made a promise of hope. Now, do I believe it's good to work toward making things better? Certainly I do. We do that. That is at the heart of Christian ministry. That is at the heart of who we are as people who love the gospel. We do. But we can rest assured that that will not and does not bring the hope that is necessary for us for eternity. And God was looking ahead toward eternity because he sees and he knows all things and has planned all things. And his landscape is the whole of eternity forever 
and ever. The fact that God always keeps his word. That's what enables those who trust in him to keep going and to hold on and to continue to hold and cling to his promises. When things are dark and difficult and the season in life is tough, now, I know there are folks here today who are probably dealing with a difficult season in your life. I know some are, are grieving the loss of loved ones. Some are looking ahead at struggles and stuff that other people don't even know you have. Deep inside of you, you are struggling. You may even struggle with getting up in the morning. You may even be looking at your life and you're wondering, is there really any hope for me or is this all that is left for me for the rest of my life. Those are hard things. Those are hard things to deal with day in and day out. When the thoughts come to our mind, even at times, man, I just wish this was over. I want it to be over. I want this season of life to be over. God has made a promise that in Christ it will be over. And it will not be, it will not leave you devastated but it will leave you with an abundance of joy and life for all eternity. God makes those promises and he keeps it. But notice the next thing that Isaiah points to here, that this root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Now Isaiah paints this picture and they understand it and they get it, probably more so than any of us. The root of Jesse will stand as a standard bearer for the peoples. What is the image that he's pointing to? Well, he's pointing to this standard that is held up by an army. This standard is being held up by an army. And that standard is the thing that all the soldiers look to, to know where they are, where they are to be, and when even left behind, they are looking for the standing standard so that they can find safety and hope. It's a flag, it's a banner, it says, this is ours, this is where we are, this is what you come to. I thought it was interesting here in this text that Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about a root that can't be seen, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is giving life from where you can't see and know, to being a standard that is being placed out in front of everybody so that everyone can see him. In much the same way as we read uh, even just a moment ago when we were looking at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. No one has seen God except God himself. And then he comes and shows himself in that person, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. In our minds, buried in all eternity, never being, never, God never being seen, to now being placed up where he can be seen. Notice what it is. He is a stand, he is standing as a signal for the peoples. Turn to John chapter 3 just a moment since we looked at John chapter 3 and some of you will immediately recognize where we're going with this and this is exactly what Isaiah uh, and what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us. 
Look in verse 9 of John chapter 3. Now this is the account of Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. Uh, probably a Pharisee who had come to Jesus at night. Um, some people say he's coming to antagonize him. Others say that he's coming just really looking for light. I, I, don't, I don't know that we can tell entirely by the text, but this is what we do know. Is Jesus went to the heart of Nicodemus' problems and his issues, the same problems that we have. Because Nicodemus was wanting to know, how can I have eternal life? How can I be in the presence of God? And Jesus told him, he said, you must be born again. But then look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? In other words, how, how, how can we even speak of being born again? I can't go back into my mother's womb. It's a supernatural thing that Jesus is explaining to him. And this is what he says. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now Nicodemus understood what was being said here. We may or may not know what that looks like. So let's go to Numbers chapter 21 and let's find out what was being said. Why, what was Jesus pointing to whenever he pointed uh, Nicodemus uh, to this thing that as Moses raised up a serpent, so must the Son of Man be raised up. In Numbers chapter 21, look in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. That sound like many of us, impatience? Well, know that that is not commendable. Uh, and it led to their sin. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? In other words, where are you? What are you doing? What, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't make sense. For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So now Jesus is telling Nicodemus there, saying, I want you to get this picture, Nicodemus. And that is, is that I must be lifted up in the same way. And if a man is to live, he is going to have to look to me, to see me, to look to me, to know me, and to trust me for his life. Doesn't that make just incredible sense for us as we think about the gospel and we think about eternal life? Jesus said they must see me, they must look to me, 
to live, and I will be lifted up. Isn't it incredible? Whenever Isaiah is talking about the hope that is to come, that he is pointing to the one who will be lifted up as a standard bearer to be seen, to be known, to be understood in that sense, and to know at that point that therein is where life can be had. There is where salvation will come. There is where my hope will rest. If I am to have life, like being on a battlefield, looking for the standard to be raised so that we can get there for safety, find our people and get there for safety. It's an incredible picture. And God sends his son for that very reason. That's what Isaiah was saying. This root of Jesse that you can't see in eternity has now been sprouted to be a branch and this branch will grow up and he is lifted up as the standard bearer, lifted up so that we can have life. I want you to think about this a minute. Some of you have been in the military and you've served so you'll have some connection with this. Can you imagine looking across the landscape and not seeing any of your people and being left alone? Ever so often you see these movies of these soldiers that are, that are kind of left behind and left alone. And some of them make it back by the grace of God. Some of them make it back. But where you're standing all alone and there is no sign of anyone that you can identify with, that's got to be a lonely, fearful, scary place. Did you know that our life is that way apart from Christ? It is lonely and fearful and scary. Some of you know that. Some of you have felt it, been delivered from it. Some of you are feeling it now. And some of you may be trying to grab a hold of a whole lot of other things to somehow or another fill it up to where I'm not lonely and I'm not afraid. But in the quietness of the night, in that still moment, when you're alone, you're reminded, and I thank God you are, you're reminded, none of this is helping me. None of this is helping me. Christ does, can, and will. Because he is the one that has been placed up before us so that we can see him. Turn over to John chapter 12, and we'll hear Jesus again even speak about that, about himself. In John chapter 12, verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was of Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, 
Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and, and, and Andrew and said to Philip and went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am... There will my servant also be. I want you to hold on to that. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it was thunder. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lifted up. Lifted up where? Lifted up on the cross of Calvary. In his death, lifted up before the rest of the world. Um, our Connect group, uh, you, you probably already know because some of you know, Brian teaches it. But Brian uh, repeatedly tells us that the centerpiece of all of creation and of all of time and for all eternity, the centerpiece is the cross of Christ. We either gather there to see Jesus or we take a glance at it and move on. But it is those who come and bow at the foot of the cross and cry out to this one that was lifted up for life. Those who bow at the foot of the cross are the ones who have life. Isaiah was clear uh, in this picture. Now turn back over to Isaiah chapter 11 again, and I want us to see the next phrase there. Look at what it says, of him shall the nations inquire, or looking to him being lifted up, they come and seek him out for life. They come to find out about him. They come so that they can know him. Uh, Paul referenced this in Romans chapter 15, so if you will turn there, and I deliberately did not read the passage of scripture this morning that I normally do because I knew that we were going to come here, and I knew that we would read it now. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 8 if you will. For I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, and I want you to know what he's talking about. He's writing here and he says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove that word circumcised for just a minute. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to Israel, to the Jewish nation, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and he did, the patriarchs, and also the prophets, 
okay? He doesn't have prophets here, but, but he refers to a prophet in here just a moment. He refers to Isaiah. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now this is huge. I want you to go back. You're holding in Isaiah chapter 11. You go back and look at that verse 10 again. He stands as a standard. He's lifted up so that he will be seen by all and the nations will inquire of him, will seek him out, will come to him because they will discover that there is no other source of life but this one that has been lifted up on the cross. That's what Isaiah is pointing to. And then whenever Paul deals with it, he says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and, and I'll sing to your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Isn't that what we've been talking about? The root of Jesse will come even he who arises the rule of the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Heaven's hope to us today. Heaven's hope for Israel then and now is Jesus Christ himself, the very root of Jesse, the branch, and the means by which that hope is known, the means by which that hope really becomes hope, is that he was lifted up on the cross and died for our sins. And our sin is terrible. Our sin is poison. Our sin is terrible poison that would cause us to just vomit if we really saw our desperate need. And then we run to Christ for life. And then look at verse 13. We wanted to finish there in, in Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That you may abound in hope. Isn't it incredible? The 700 years before Christ, 700 years before his death and resurrection, that Isaiah was pointing to him and that he would be lifted up for all to see and that from him the nations would have life because they would come and look at the crucified and resurrected Lord. And then he says this, and his resting place shall be glorious. His resting place is glory. His resting place shall be glorious. He rests in having glorified the Father. You know, therein is the only place that we can find rest. It's when we come to God and seek to glorify Him. But He rests in glorifying the Father. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 17 and verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son 
may glorify you. He rests in having glorified the Father. He rests in having secured life for those who would believe in him. In other words, his, his, his being placed up as a standard was, was, was meant for something. It wasn't just to be viewed at. It wasn't to be gawked at. No, it would be those who would come and believe and trust in him and their life would be made secure. That is his promise. In John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How? We read it earlier, through adoption. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. Born of God. He rests in having made purification for sins. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You know that sitting down was a, was a, a place of honor, but, but it also is his picture of resting after having accomplished this great work. Now, of course, I, he didn't sit back on his laurels here. He's interceding for us at work sustaining and holding all of creation together. But the picture is here, is that he rests in a work that was done for our sake, the purification of sin, which apart from, there would be no offer to life. No offer of life to you and to me. He rests in being at the right hand of God. Think about that. To be, a, to, to, have, to have sought his glory and fulfilled it. To have completed the work that secured life for those that God was redeeming. To, to, to bring about the purification of sin. That was hard labor. One of my all-time favorite movies is Cool Hand Luke. A lot of you probably never watched it. Um, but he had hard labor in prison. Hard labor. Shrubbing ditch banks, digging ditches, working in the rain, working even in the thunder and lightning. Just incredible hard labor. You know what the hard labor that Christ endured? The hard labor of bearing the wrath of God? For you and for me. The hard labor of bearing the wrath of God. And when it was over, God sat him down right back in his place again, at his right hand. He rests in waiting his return. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, we hear this. He who testifies, talking about Christ, he is the one who's giving testimony to all of Revelation. He is the one that is showing all of this, all of this to John. He is the one that is being held up again and again. And here's what he, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. He rests in awaiting his coming. Coming for what? 
coming that once and for all, that sin and death are completely done away with except for the eternal death and judgment of all of those who have not looked to him raised up on that standard, who have not come to him for life, who have not sought him, who don't love him, who only take a glimpse and turn away. And here's the beautiful thing, and it really is a wonder. He invites us to enter into his rest. In Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, this is what we hear. These were Jesus' words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. I get tired physically. Keep going, just like most of all of you. Soul weariness is something that is just huge. Night's rest don't bring rest for the soul. We can sleep all night long, maybe, and our souls agonize. Agonize because we're dissatisfied with things in life. Agonize because we're dissatisfied with ourselves. Agonize because deep inside we are carrying the burdens of sin and guilt and shame. And it will destroy your soul for sure. That is the reason that Jesus offered the invitation to come unto me, all you who are weak, tired, heavy laden, and I'll give rest for your soul and give rest to your soul. Heaven's hope. Well, heaven's hope. From heaven. All that comes with that is from heaven, it's from God. And as we heard last week, it is a hope that is ultimately found and known in the end and all of its culmination in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therein is rest for the weary soul. I am grateful today, though, that as it pertains to our sin, shame and guilt attached to that and associated with it, hardship and suffering that has come with it, that that rest can be had and known today. Even with all the turmoil and stuff that's going on around us, Inwardly, our lives do not have to be in turmoil because of sin and shame and the guilt that is associated with it. And that's real, as it should be. But you can have rest today in the Lord Jesus Christ.
the one who is lifted up as a banner for us to see and to flock to for salvation, for life, for safety, for refuge, because our souls need him. I'm going to ask Booney and Catherine and Alina if they would come and we're going to have an opportunity to set our gaze on thinking of him and crying out to him now to come again to us even though he has come. Would you stand as we sing?